now for some questions. Your brother, if you'd like to ask a question, you can raise your hand. Josiah will bring you the microphone. And uh, so we'll ready for hands. Well, I'll go first while you think. Okay. So, as you argued, liberation theology has this sort of um, extreme view of what the gospel is, that the gospel essentially is exclusively liberation from systems of oppression or marginalization or poverty, more specifically in Latin America. And though I think we should be careful not to swing totally to the opposite side of that, which, of course, you pointed out with hundreds of passages about uh, God's people being required to take care of the poor. So where's the middle ground? Help us to find the middle ground between a system that excludes the other qualities of the gospel, which you say the liberation theology excludes, and having a view of Christianity or of the kingdom of God that has no concern for the poor and maybe only emphasizes the uh, spiritual qualities of what it means to be a Christian. What's the, what's the middle ground that we should be looking for? Well, um... I had that in some of those pages I didn't get to. Um, God has already provided for the poor, the Christians. He's already provided. First, First Timothy six eighteen. The rich should should be ready to distribute. Uh, the example of uh, in Leviticus twenty two, where where the, uh, the Israelites were commanded to leave things in the field. The middle ground is just to do what the Bible says about giving to the poor. First Timothy 6 says rich people have an obligation to really distribute the poor. So I think that's the, I would call that the middle ground, just what the Bible says to do and not get behind these social movements and groups and all of that because that's that's outside the Bible. So that's kind of how I've seen it. Austin Maddox and Matt Kuderna. Thank you very much. Excellent presentation. Um, as you kind of pointed out there, it's this theology is so far from theology, it's liberated itself from it. It's become kind of its own religion in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think, particularly for folks in my generation right now and younger who are being brought up in this, just what you were talking about, these are going to be not just uh, theoretical conversations, but evangelistic conversations. So how would you approach trying to convert someone away from liberation theology? Well, uh, I can tell you what I do. Uh, I start out with, um, with the Bible and just creating a theology of the Bible. If the person is open, I say, do you believe the Bible? If they say, yes, I believe the Bible. Uh, and I go to some basic questions, and if they believe the Bible, I just start with the Bible, and I start building a a theology on just who God is. Uh, and I pull some examples of how God dealt with the Israelites and, you know, just kind of a basic primer 101, you know, about God. Because these people, they really don't, with the ones I, I've encountered, they don't know a whole lot about the Bible. And so if you start, you know, at a basic level, and if you cultivate a relationship with them, then well, that's the first thing. You gotta have a relationship. You can't just jump in because this stuff is pretty powerful uh, that people buy into it so easily because it appeals to what we want to do. We want to help people. We don't like poor people to be so. And I think a lot of people don't really understand their view of social justice. But we just—that's just, what I do. I just start with a basic Bible discussion, uh, 
You can't ever go wrong with that. So, and see based on their knowledge, you know, you always kind of gauge the person's knowledge of the scripture. And if I can go a little deeper on some things, I will. If I have to keep at a basic level, I'll do that. So that's kind of how I deal, deal with it. And I let them talk too. You got to listen to them too. And when they put out a point, then if you can think of a scripture to kind of, you know, say, well, hey, why don't you think about this? You know, have you, have you looked at this? Or what do you think about this? That, that's kind of what I do too. Because they, some of them are really kind of shaky on it. They can repeat, you know, the doctrine because it's pretty easy. But I know I'm rallying on here, but that's, that's kind of how I do it. You know, I just start with the Bible. Okay, we've got several questions queued up. So Matt Kudernoff and Alan Bonifay. It seems that the issue with this is that it's intermingling good biblical principles with political theology, or political philosophy, mm -hmm. rather. And, and those are where the issues come in, where you allow your ideology about how the, the world is supposed to work influence your your biblical interpretation and that could be that could be broadcast to a to a larger issue of, of ever letting your political ideology uh, or yeah influence your your bible interpretation mm -hmm. and, and what what are some ways that, that we can avoid something such as this but not discount good biblical principles and then uh, broadcast that into into our our lives as a whole when we when we start to see biblical principles interfere with what we what, what we conceive as our political ideology that we may have espoused? Well, that's a tough question. Uh, I like to keep things simple, you know, and if if you begin to see those two merging, that, that's what you're asking? Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's going to depend on how invested the individual that you're talking about in political theology, I mean, uh, theory. Um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tight walk, uh, but my, my approach has always been, uh, I stay with the Bible. If, if somebody, if I'm talking to somebody and I'm studying and I can see that they're heavily into politics and this, then I just look for an opening. I, I probably listen, I let them talk probably more than most people would, would let them talk. But I, I look for an opening and I just, I go to that point. You know, I, uh, you can't, you know, broad brush it. You have to find a point to go in to try to help that individual uh, keep that separately. And you just, the only way you can keep it separate is to just uh, stay with the Bible. I mean, I know it's kind of a general answer, but but it's a hard question, really. But I I hope I gave you something to think about. Alan Bosbay and then Hunter Smith. So let me ask this, Bobby. See, I'm looking for the middle ground that that Shahi was asking about. So in Mark chapter one. <laughs> Uh, Jesus has miraculous power. He can, he can accomplish anything by miraculous power. He raises the dead, he heals the sick, all of that. Mm -hmm. So in Mark 1, he heals this man with an unclean spirit, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, 
and had all the people come to his door, to Peter's door that night, and Jesus heals them way into the night. He gets up the next morning, he goes into the wilderness to pray, and the disciples come to him, and they say, what are you doing? Everybody's looking for you. And of course they're looking for him. They want more miracles. And Jesus says, no, he said, let's go to the next towns and preach the gospel. So I take from that that Jesus' priority was preaching the doctrine of the kingdom that was about to come. Now, he had miraculous power, and he used it to people's benefit. And if you were the one that received the miracle, it was a tremendous benefit. But that wasn't his main function. He didn't stop everything and perform miracles all the time. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. In John 5, at the pool of Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda is covered up with sick people all around it. And he only heals one man. If his mission was to uh, relieve everybody who was sick, like, it is, like the idea of relieving the poor becoming the main mission, then he would have healed everybody around the pool of Bethesda. But that wasn't his main mission. His mission there was to provoke a Sabbath day controversy because they were adding laws to God's law. In Acts uh, 3, Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. He heals the man and then is enabled to preach a sermon to people about Jesus Christ in whom there is salvation in no other name. Is that sort of the middle ground we're looking for? Jesus and the apostles did good to these people uh, and were generous and benefited them. Now, this is miraculous power we're talking about. But their priority was preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. And conversion is a one-by-one -one process, not a national process. Is that? Yeah, well, I can see that. Is that sort of what you're trying to say we should be doing instead of this other political Yes, stuff? yes. Okay, Hunter Smith and then David Griffin. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate that. That was a good historical uh, perspective, and I always appreciate that and that sort of stuff. It's right my alley. I think one of the appeals, and this is more or less the same question that everyone else has asked, which is kind of a little bit different nuance. But I think one of the nuances of uh, megachurches, I'm sorry, one of the appeals of megachurches in that sort of uh, perspective on Christianity are these sort of social programs that, you know, soup kitchens, hunger drives, blah, 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 for the poor. And I haven't really ran into it personally, but I mean, I know people will on occasion criticize the church and say, look, you guys are just focused on mm -hmm. salvation and you're not focused on just the programs. And I mean, obviously, I don't think you would advocate for uh, church social programs, you know, as extensions of the church. But for us as individuals, is there a degree to which we are responsible or that we should be actively engaged in caring for the poor on, a, on more of an, individu an individu individualistic uh, level? You know, should we be doing things independently of the church for you know, various uh, marginalized and groups? Well, I think so. Now, I couldn't tell you to what degree. It depends on your individual abilities to do because everybody can't really do the same thing but yes 
I think First Timothy six. He's talking about the rich, but he says, "Be ready to distribute." But I think that's that's a, a principle. You know what we have. If you're able to share it, you should do it. Uh, I've heard the criticisms about the church. You know, we just focus on the Bible and that's it. But you know, yeah, we should be. I mean, I don't know everybody's capability, and I wouldn't say that. In fact, I had a piece in there about, I was going to make a comment about, I can't really make a comment about how the individual members of the church have responded to, you know, the poor. I know what we do at home. I know what I do, and I know what my wife does and all that, but, you know, that's, that's different from, I think it's an individual thing. But yes, it's the long answer, but yes, I think we do. And maybe we haven't been as, you know, giving as we probably need to be. Um, I, I had a comment like that, and I, I, personally, I don't think I have been. You know, this kind of, it kind of convicted me a little bit, because I said, man, these people, I mean, they were serious about it. Of course, they went the wrong direction with it. But they, in fact, that's one of the, I didn't read it, but I think one of the things that we can take away from this is that they were laser focused on helping the poor. Now, we can't go with the doctrine and what they did, but they, they, they went too far. But I think they had a scriptural idea, but they just perverted it. So. David Griffin, for our last question. I know, Bobby, that was very good. I appreciate that. Um, a lot of questions, I guess, really, but uh, you mentioned the schools. And uh, you know, I remember when I was growing up, uh, my mother would tell me that if uh, there was something taught in one of the classes, usually the biology course, uh, where they taught evolution, and that she'd say, well, you just answer the questions or do what you have to do to just get through it, you know, and, but you don't have to agree with it. Now, I guess maybe that works uh, sometimes, but um, it seems to me that this thing is a little more, as my impression is, and I'm no expert in any of this stuff, uh, my impression is that it's a little more pervasive than just something you can step outside the biology class and move on. It is. It's being infused into mathematics, literature, history, yes. everything, every subject. So, I don't know, I guess I'm asking the question, if you have any advice for parents that are sending kids to school who encounter this kind of thing uh, all day in every course? Well, unless you can homeschool your kids and um, just to give you an example, my my granddaughter, I mentioned it in the talk, my granddaughter came home about three months ago. And I usually ask, I think I told somebody this story, but she, uh, I always ask her about her, what's going on in school. She's middle school, like seventh grade. And so she said that her best friend, a little white girl, that they've been in school from second grade in the same classes and so forth, they go to each other's birthday parties, all that sort of thing. Said her, her friend came up to her and said, and wanted to untie her shoe and tie it back, but to show you how pervasive it is. And Vashti said, no, I don't want you to talk. No, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. But she insisted. So Vashti just, she, she let her do it. 
So I did a little digging, and what it was, it, it was, it was, it was Black History Month, and the kids had to do something to a black person to show them that they were sorry for treating for slavery back in eight. I was so, well, I went to the school and I got up with the principal and I was nice about it, but I was mad because she, my granddaughter, her, she thought that was wrong for her to do that, which, which I believe it was. But the teacher, the principal said that they didn't condone that at the school. The kids must have got it off TikTok. That you have to do something for a black person. You know, they were tying shoes, they were opening doors, they were doing a lot of things, you know. But that's, that's, that's critical race theory. That's critical race theory. Companies, just the other day, companies are forcing their employees to go to sensitivity training so they cannot speak. You know, if you're prejudiced or if you're racist, you go to de-racist de programming or something. That's critical race theory. In a junior college in Alabama, the other day, a couple of weeks ago, the teacher was a lesbian and force the students to say their pronouns. You have to say your pronouns. You had to say it. I don't know what kind of class it was, but that's just to your point, how pervasive it is. And this was a little rural junior college in Alabama. So it's a whole lot worse things going on, but advice, David, unless you can afford to educate your kid homeschooling, you're not going to be able to avoid it. They say math is math is discriminatory, is racist. Can you imagine math is racist? Math. And, and the thing about it, they're lowering the standards because they say, well, these black folks can't pass this test, so let's lower it so they can pass it. Well, look, I don't want to get on a plane with a pilot who had a low score. On a, I don't want to get on a plane. I don't want a doctor who had to get in medical school because they had to lower the standard. I don't want that doctor. See, that's critical race theory. That's what it's doing. It's lowering the standards. Getting in school. Harvard has just, they dropped their, well, they did a few years ago, but grades are the thing of the past. You don't make a grade. Oh, you passed. So, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent. I can talk about this all day. But it's just, I wish I had some advice. But I really, I just, I just, anyway.